Education Trends is brought to you by our friends at BMO Education. BMO works with higher education institutions to develop and implement income-based finance programs on their campuses. Want help designing an ISA program? BMO has you covered. Check out the link in our show notes to learn more about how BMO partners with and designs ISAs for world-class higher education institutions. And now, on to education trends. At LRNG, Connie Yole and her team are changing the way people approach learning. By partnering with schools and cities to create a game-based learning initiative, the crew at LRNG is making learning more practical and a more fun experience for all involved. Those in the program choose learning playlists and earn badges by demonstrating proficiency in certain skills, thereby unlocking more opportunities and, in some cases, even course credit for their work. It's a radical new way to learn, and it's showing promise. Recently, LRNG merged with SNHU, another education disruptor, and together the two organizations hope to scale the LRNG principles so that more and more people can learn in a new way. Connie talked about all of that and more here. So Connie, first of all, thank you so much for joining us on EdTrends. I really appreciate it. If we could jump right in, I'd love to learn a little bit about you. So uh, tell me your name, where you work, your position, what you're doing these days. Sure. I'm Connie Yell. I am the CEO of LRNG, and I am now an executive vice president of Southern New Hampshire University as well. I live in Chicago. I am working hard in the in a set of cities to put young people on paths to success. I'd love to learn a little bit about how you got there in the first place. So tell me about your education experiences, the work you've done leading up to this and how you got where you are right now. Epi too, but I'm a little old, so it's a long story. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll make it short. I think on the educational side, I have a On the one hand, I have a fairly traditional, privileged educational background, which is to say I had the privilege of going to a prep school outside of Boston as a young person and then went from there to Yale University and then took a a five-year hiatus from education and then got my PhD in psychology and child and adolescent development at Stanford. The thing that perhaps sits outside of that that is equally important because, you know, I come from the world where we talk as much about learning as we do about education. And for us, learning happens everywhere, anytime, all of the time. When I grew up on a, in a very small rural town in the thumb of Michigan uh, on a farm, <laughs> and it was a community, and I'm a little bit older, it's a community in which nobody ever left. And very few people went to college and there were only two pathways out, actually. I have three brothers and they all took one pathway, which was you could join the military and then see the world. The other pathway is if you have a little bit of a gift or if you're particularly good at something, it becomes a way to access new opportunities. And I happen to be a fairly good athlete. And so when I was young, I saw tennis on TV and my brothers and I built a tennis court in our backyard out of twine and I just started playing. And so I got pretty good and became a national level player and thought I wanted to be the next Martina Navratilova. Uh, And part of what's so important about that experience is that it was one of those experiences that enabled me to take something I was passionate about, which was my sport to spend a ton of time with a set of peers and mentors and coaches who really helped me get phenomenally good at what I was doing and getting good at it had payoff in the real world. 
So I got access to all sorts of equipment and coaches and travel and traveled the world playing tennis. And it, I had no doubt it opened up a whole set of educational and college opportunities for me as well. So when people ask me about my education, for me, the things I did outside of school are as important as the things I did in school. What did you love about the learning experience, whether it was inside the classroom or out of it? How much did you love learning a skill or applying that skill? It has really been the model for me about how I think about learning more generally. You know, I think there's a lot to say about the negative sides of competition and and sports in the broader professional world that can be problematic. There's an enormous amount to learn from it in terms of sports really represent one of the few truly well-developed interest-based pathways to success that we have wrapped our arms around as a country and have made available uh, at scale. And so being able to be passionate about something, I mean, I lived and drink and and breathe my sport. To have a set of peers who were both at my level, but then also represented to me, I could easily see what the next level of competence was and how Mm -hmm. I wanted to get there. I had access to coaches and peers and folks who shared my interests, but were better than me and could mentor me. And then I had lots of opportunities to test how well, how good I was getting. And to then get immediate feedback and rewards and opportunities based on those results and have lots of opportunities to fail and keep getting better. I mean, that's what what good learning competency based in many ways learning is. And I think sports are a true competency based learning activity. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm old and it's still a huge part of who I am. (laughs) It's something when you when you're really sort of when your identity is connected to what you want to get better at. And your identity is connected to how you see yourself in the world, both having a a lifestyle and a way to engage others. It stays with you. And so for me, as we as you know, hopefully we'll move into a, a conversation about what I'm doing now. It still forms the basis of how I think about learning and how we how I think about defining an infrastructure that enables us to scale competency based learning to all youth. So it was it was a very meaningful beginning set of learning experiences for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious about what you're doing now. I'm curious about how you moved from tennis and uh, you could have, I'm sure, had a, a career in tennis or some kind of job, even in that world, in the sports world. But you chose higher education as your path. And I, I wonder how that came to be and how LRNG started. Yeah, so th- so they're both connected. I've always been passionate about equity and social justice and have felt unbelievably lucky and privileged in my world, even though not, you know, I also grew up in a fairly in a low-income rural community. And so have really wanted and been always reflective about well, how do we ensure that everybody has the same sets of privileged opportunities and what would it look like to be able to do that? And I've always believed that education is at the core of being able to make those opportunities available to everyone. And so it was a natural thing for me to move into education after I graduated from undergrad. Yeah, I was a professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I was a tenured professor and and did that work for, for eight or nine years, had an extraordinary experience, and then became the director of education at the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation for 15 years. And while there... 
really had the opportunity to see with incredible people who are doing just phenomenal work, it's a broad community of grantees, to see really great innovations about what the future of learning can look like. And then after doing that for 15 years, realized that we had really built a wonderful vision of what the future of learning can be, but that we were constantly getting blocked because uh, I believe that we don't have the right infrastructure for scale and what scale needs to look like in order to scale those innovations. So we had pockets of incredible innovation and incredible work. And and this I'm paraphrasing someone and I don't know who I'm paraphrasing, (laughs) but we were doing pockets of innovation in a sea of chaos. And so spun out to create LRNG because we really wanted to take as our mission, how do you build in this in the 21st century an infrastructure that enables scale of high quality learning experiences and enables young folks to be put on to move on their paths to success? So that's really the motivation for spinning out with LRNG was sort of being able to see unbelievable, great, innovative work over the last 10 or 15 years and still not having cracked the nut on what scale looks like. So tell me about the work you're doing with LRNG. How are you creating that infrastructure? How are you working in the education system to improve it? Yeah. So again, I want to be careful. We work (laughs) in the learning space. And so people often, education often gets codified as what are you doing inside schools? And when we talk about schools, particular things, particular times of day and in a particular way happen in our school buildings. And it's important. It's critical work. I think that we need ecosystems and networks in order to be built in order both for schools to be successful, but for more broadly for us to really close the equity gap and scale. So mm-hmm. LRNG is a, is a community-based technology-enabled approach to enabling our communities to transition from siloed, fragmented education and workforce systems to learning and work ecosystems. And so we do that by providing a technology platform and working really closely with communities to build the playlists and pathways that can cross multiple systems and award credit. And we do Mm -hmm. it with a alternative credential called an open badge that can level up into opportunities, into jobs, into college credit. And so we've been, we're in 15 cities and we've been doing that work over the last three years. Yeah. So I'm curious about your partnership with cities and how you kind of implement this, this kind of game-based learning that you talk about. What, what is that and how do you make that possible? So it's a complicated process, <laughs> but, but you can't really implement complexity at scale. So we are trying to make it as simple as possible. So we work at multiple levels in a community. So our low-income young people often are resourcing the best assets in their communities that are both in schools, nonprofit organizations, and in a lot of public agencies, whether it's the libraries, public parks, summer youth employment programs. So when we work in cities, we want to work with a mayor's office, which often sort of connects to the public libraries, the public parks, summer youth employment, as well as with the nonprofits in the community and with the school system. So we begin, often we go into a city and we begin with summer youth employment Mm -hmm. as a way to begin to be the learning and development platform for summer youth employment, to integrate learning into those summer jobs, and to be able to offer young people 
have them earn badges in career readiness and financial literacy, could be in coding and a whole set of things that are also connected to the jobs that they're doing over the summer. We then backward map those that initial summer work in two ways. We backward map it into school programs that can be happening after school or in the school, and we forward map it now with our merger with Southern New Hampshire University into college credits. So that the idea, and you can hear from what I'm saying already, it's almost like knitting a, a cloth together, sort of a tapestry of the ecosystem of the city so that workforce development can work seamlessly with nonprofit organizations, can work seamlessly with schools, can integrate work and learning at the same time for low-income young people. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's super interesting the way that you weave everything together. What does it look like when a student is learning at the same time as doing a summer job? How does that work, I guess? Like, what's the uh, logistics of that? Are they taking a class at the same time? Like, they're earning badges, and those badges eventually turn into, you know, other jobs or college credit or something, right? Yeah, yeah. So let me let me tell you just a little bit about the nomenclature of our platform in an effort to explain that. So, <laughs> so we have transitioned from talking about curriculum or courses to talking about playlists mm -hmm. and what you'll hear in everything that we do is that we think in the 21st century we as educators have to fully embrace user design and design-centric approaches and so for us the user is the youth mm -hmm. the user is the learner and so everything we do in our work is designed to be we design with young people not for young people and so in designing all of the content and experiences that young people have, everything is direct to youth. And so we talk about playlists because that makes sense to young people, right? That sort of, we want to integrate learning into their everyday lifestyle, because as we think about living in the 21st century, we are all going to have to be constant learners yeah. and constantly upgrading our skills and how we think and so for us, it's critical, again, that notion of you don't go someplace in order to learn. Learning is a part of your everyday life. And so a playlist for us is very similar when you think about iTunes or Spotify or any of those things. You take a, a playlist, which is, you know, a set of songs that are all similar or have a particular kind of theme to them. So we break learning up into modules. We make it as granular as possible. We call those XPs. We knit together a set of XPs in a theme-based or narrative way, and we call that a playlist. And so young people come onto our platform, figure out what they're interested in or what is the opportunity that they want to unlock. They then have to complete a set of playlists and earn the badge related to that interest, related to the opportunity they want to unlock, and they earn the opportunity by unlocking the, the badge. So let me give you two for instances. Sure. In Chicago, Chicago, the folks in Chicago were really concerned that they had 32,000 young people. It's an extraordinary summer youth employment program. They had 32,000 young people participating in summer youth employment, earning paychecks and not banking those paychecks. And so particularly for our low-income youth, we've got to make sure they know how to bank their dollars and how to save and what that looks like. So we built out a playlist ostensibly around the theme is around financial literacy. It's called Be Payday Ready, and it, it has a whole theme-based, uh, very engaging approach to taking our young people through what it means to bank their money and what it means to save. 
they have to demonstrate a whole set of competencies that earn them a badge. They don't get their first paycheck until they earn that badge. Oh, wow. So the badge literally unlocks their paycheck. It was the folks in Chicago's insight to do that. And the brilliance of that is, and this is one of our design features, is that we think that learning has to be aligned. We have to close the gap between when learning happens and when the payoff for that learning gets experienced. You know, as I got better in tennis, I immediately started winning matches. Mm-hmm. We want our young kids to be winning as they're learning. So they learn how to bank, they get their paycheck. So we saw the banking, the number of young people that were banking their dollars went through the roof. And you can imagine everybody finished that playlist. So, so <laughs> they got to get that money somehow. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so when we think about, and that's sort of what happens in gameplay is that there's something you're interested in. There's a problem that you need to solve. You figure out how to solve that problem. And there's an immediate sort of whole new sets of opportunities that come to you because you've demonstrated the ability to solve a problem. So really on our platform, we are really trying to integrate the core problems and projects that we know our young people are deeply interested in and make sure that as they build their competency, it unlocks a set of opportunities that they're interested in and that have meaning for them. I'll give you two more examples, if that's okay, because it becomes (laughs) an interesting way to design. So in Springfield, Ohio, we had a, a set of young people who, and this should be no surprise to any of us, are really interested in rap, really <laughs> interested in creating their own musical beats. They have a beautiful new media in Springfield, Ohio, that has a sound and music set of programs. We built a set of playlists with them around beat making. As those young people got much better at beat making and building out their music, they actually unlocked a competency badge. Turns out we've had wonderful experience working with John Legend. John Legend is from Springfield, Ohio. They unlocked the opportunity to have John listen to their music and give them feedback virtually, which was a huge opportunity. So oh, wow, yeah. We, we try to be innovative and creative about what an opportunity is. It can be a job. It can be college credit. And it can be these other mentoring kinds of opportunities that we know our young people are hungry for. The next level of badge that those young people unlocked was the opportunity to be the sound engineer at the local theater. So they both got connected to an enriching mentoring experience and they got connected to a job. So that's an example of sort of connecting an out-of-school interest-based program to a job and career-related program. I would say the third really great example that we've been working on is that we work closely with Apple. Apple's been piloting and scaling its Everyone Can Code curriculum. So we've put that curriculum, we've connected it to our platform so it's easily accessible and findable by young people. We worked with Apple to create a set of badges related to Everyone Can Code. Apple worked with the Summer Youth Employment Program in Chicago And as young people, they were doing this in after-school programs during spring break, were earning badges related to competency in swift coding, which is the coding that you need, the skill that you need in order to build a mobile app. If they earned a set of Apple badges that then unlocked in summer youth employment, the opportunity to work with a company that was building mobile apps. So then we get an alignment between young people's interests the building of skill and competency, and then a really cool summer internship program that relates to what they just learned. 
So we have sort of a nice alignment there between interest, community, and relevancy in the real world. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible the way that you're kind of incentivizing and building programs with students and kind of co-designing them with them and to to meet their needs. I'd, I'd love to know what the response has been and how you see it growing and what kind of things they're asking for that the students or, or the people who are going through your program are looking for now. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of things before I, in answer to that, I also want to say all of the design for this work. So the privilege of being at MacArthur and working with an extraordinary set of folks is that over the course of those 15 years, we had folks like Katie Salen and Mimi Ito and Nicole Pinkert and Joe mm-hmm. Kahn and Elise eidman Adal and John Coffrey, a set of really extraordinary, and many more, a set of extraordinary folks really came to understand sort of the design and contours of high quality pedagogy and the technological age that, that we call connected learning. And so all of the design that you hear me referring to and that we've instantiated into our platform now so that we can scale it is all built on the design principles of connected learning that these extraordinary grantees and folks have sort of spent their careers really doing the deep research for bringing that together. So as we're building out the connected learning, which really is sort of connecting a young person's interest to a peer group and community and mentoring context, to then having payoff in the real world, which, which happens across all of our playlists. The next then set of questions that we're getting from our partners is, first, can you go deeper on career readiness? So we work with a whole set of employers mm-hmm. to make sure that we're also making sure that our young people are building the skills and competencies that they need to be successful in the 21st century while also making sure that they're on a college pathway. What we hear across the board is our young people really need to know how to collaborate, how to do critical thinking, how to problem solve. They need to know how to show up on time. And so we are really going deep on making sure that, and that quite frankly, I have a 16 and a 19 year old. Mm -hmm. As I think about what my middle class privilege has enabled me to do as a parent is to make sure that my sons are building those skills and competencies and that I as a parent hold them accountable to those skills and competencies and that they're learning how to reflect on those skills and competencies to express themselves around those skills and competencies and how to network opportunities. And so as we're building out the next phase of LRMG, we want to make sure that our youth are building those same skills and competencies, are learning how to be articulate about them, and how to network both in their community and beyond so that they can easily move into the future of work and learning. We are also working with a whole set of employers because the deeper I go into the employment sector, the more we realize that our employers are not necessarily ready for this next generation of young people. And that's awesome. there's a gap. Well, there's a gap between what our young people are expecting when they go uh-huh. into a job, regardless of class, race, and gender, and how our companies are setting up those jobs. So uh-huh. our young people to the person are coming in saying, really, they want to be an entrepreneur. They really want to be managing and be self-directed and really have some sense of ownership around what they're doing. Our companies are by and large 
even on the internship side, still sort of thinking about those as the well, let's I, we just need to bring a young person into our workforce and it's sort of right. like a temporary, like just let, let's just drop them in and yeah, kind figure of an, it out. An old school way of doing it. Yeah. Right. Continual, lots of turnover, lots of failure between the young folks and the employers. And so we really are working now in the next year, we've got support from Fossil Foundation to really work with a set of employers to say, how can we think about what that first job looks like differently? How can we think about describing the job differently and make sure that it actually connects to how the young person sees themselves, what they're interested in, and is clear to them what the benefits of that job are rather than just assume it? And also help them understand what your job culture is, which is very, very different from what our young people are prepared for. And so there's also a pretty significant cultural disconnect that we need to help our young folks be ready for and for our employers to say, it's okay, I'm going to help you get ready for this culture. So I'll give you another example. There's a whole body of research that's coming out now. It's coming out of Stanford. It's really well done called called Wise Interventions. And there's also a researcher on mentoring named Gene Rhodes out of the University of Massachusetts at Boston, who's, who's just doing extraordinary work. And part of what that research is showing is that sometimes we just need to do a Wise Intervention at a particular time that really can have a huge impact on a, on a young person's grit and persistence. So we offer, I think as a community, we're really trying to step up to offer much more mentoring. But if a young person, particularly a low-income person, doesn't feel that they have the privilege and the right to ask for help and to really know how to access that mentoring, we find very limited outcomes of the mentoring. So LRNG then can provide a set of playlists and experiences that really help our young people to learn how to take advantage of mentoring before we introduce the mentoring experience. And part of the reason that's so important is that we know that in the 21st century, our young folks are ultimately going to be changing jobs every five years. They're going to be much more self-directed workers. That means they have to know how to network. They have to know how to ask for help. They have to know how to manage those opportunities. And if we don't actually help them understand how to do that, there's constantly going to be this equity gap. And so that's part of what we're working on with LRNG in this next year. So you're working with all these companies. You're working with employers. You're also working with schools and institutions. You just did a partnership with SNHU. You're working with them very closely now. Tell me about that partnership and how you work with schools and universities like SNHU to build pathways and playlists to get students prepared for what comes next. Sure. So we have formally merged with SNHU. So we are we are now a part of SNHU Global Infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that if you had told me when I spun out of MacArthur and created LRNG that I would want to merge with a university, you could have knocked me over with a feather. <laughs> I am not convinced that the higher education that higher education writ large is moving fast enough to really serve the next generation of young people in a way that they need to be served to be ready for the 21st century. SNHU, however, is phenomenal and has really sort of owned the responsibility to close the equity gap, to offer high quality learning experiences in the higher ed space at radically affordable prices 
and to constantly disrupt itself and be as innovative as possible. And so they were a perfect fit for us in terms of all the things that we are trying to do. And so what, what, one of the first things that that means for us is that we can now be on the ground doing our, our deep, high touch, low, but at a low cost engagement in our communities, putting our young people on paths where they are earning badges and be able to have those badges earn college credit. So we were in our, before we merged with SNHU, we were really in this place of in every city having to work with each individual employer or each individual community college to have an individual badge count. And we were never gonna scale. We are now gonna be able to build out a robust infrastructure of how alternative credentials can connect to both work and to higher ed credit. So on the higher ed credit side, SNHU is also a university that believes deeply in partnership and building articulation agreements. So we are not going into communities to replace their existing community college or college infrastructure. Instead, we are going in with the university that will have already done all of the work that's necessary to build the equivalencies and create the infrastructure for scale and can partner locally. So that's one thing that's super important to us. The other thing is that SNHU has a program called College for America that is a competency-based approach to higher education in which they will partner with companies to enable companies to provide at a very low cost access to a higher education. So now there's a broader corporate ecosystem for LRNG to partner with. Mm-hmm. because we are integrated into the SNHU ecosystem. So all of that to say, I came to the belief that if we're really going to transform the ecosystem of learning and work, both for our young people and for our adults, that no single organization can do it, and that we really have to figure out how we're going to partner and what mergers and connections we're going to make in order to really get liftoff to make change happen. And we realized as LRNG that we couldn't do it alone, nor did we ever want to do it alone. And that doing it alone was probably going to mean that we were going to move way too slowly and we'd miss this next generation. And I feel a huge urgency about making the transformation happen in our cities and communities now so that we are immediately accessible for this next generation of youth that are coming up. And that we're enabling adults who are looking to upskill so that they can take advantage of the 21st century economy, that they can do it immediately. And so with this, with this merger, I think we're going deep in 2019 in Birmingham and Chicago to make sure that we've got the model right. I think we'll be able to do it with partners. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like incredible work that's being done. And ultimately, I'm curious, things change so quickly and this next generation is very soon going to be the (laughs) almost the entire workforce. So I'm curious about what you envision as the next big step for learning and how you want to ultimately see LRNG scale and become as big as possible. Where where do you see yourself going? Yeah, five years Um, from now. Yeah. And, you know, it didn't used to be so daunting to try to figure out where you wanted to be in five years. But with the pace of change, it's a little bit harder than I know. It's 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 almost impossible to predict now. Yeah, (laughs) I think the broad contours are that I think educational institutions, whether it's it's sort of high schools and or higher ed, 
will increasingly move towards being platforms for curation and assessment, curation, aggregation, and assessment. There's an mm-hmm. enormous amount of burgeoning content that is out there in our communities and online. I think the big transformation that's going to happen in the actual learning experience is going to come through AR and VR. And I'm really excited about that. But yeah. I, but I, and I don't think that the universities are necessarily going to have the infrastructure to do that. I think that there's going to be uh, partnerships with big companies, whether it's Amazon taking the lead on the, the cloud infrastructure, or Unity taking the lead on the ARBR. I think there will be emerging partnerships that will transform what the actual learning experience looks like. I think our public institutions will take on more of the role of curating, aggregating those disparate learning experiences into playlists and pathways and credentialing or providing the assessments and the credentials so that we've got a robust set of signals, both to employers and to others about competency. So I think there's gonna be a massive shift to competency-based learning that is connected to the future of work and that institutions are going to have to partner build ecosystems and platforms that aggregate, curate, and assess. So I think that will be a really big shift that's going to happen over the next sort of five to 10 years. In the long run, I, I really think that education and learning will probably shift to something that looks like a subscription model. Mm-hmm. We have to move out of this notion that we're done when we're 22 or that, you know, we, we, we go someplace for four years, whether it's undergrad or math, that I think we'll still have degrees, but I think it'll be a, a lifelong learning process. And we're constantly subscribing and constantly learning and constantly building communities around the things that we're interested in that build our competency. So I think those are going to be really big shifts that have to happen. I think on the public sort of high school side, I don't, I can't, I speak much less to the elementary school side, but on Mm -hmm. the high school side, I think there's going to be a a really big move towards thinking about alternative diplomas and thinking much more creatively and adaptively and iteratively around what it means to get to the milestone of what we now call a high school diploma and having some flexibility and variability in that. I think that our high school institutions will still provide core competencies and sort of the the numeracy and the literacy, but that most of the other competencies will be learned in a variety of different places. But again, the institution itself can help be a curator, can do guidance and mentoring as well as credentialing. So I think there are massive shifts to happen around revenue model around who and how content gets created and who and how that content gets aggregated and assessed. I mean, there's a a lot changing, a lot of innovation happening in LRNG and SNHU for that matter are on the cutting edge of it all. So it's very exciting. And I think what you're doing is very cool. Well, thank you. We're thrilled at the opportunity, particularly that the merger with SNHU has given us because at the end of the day, Our goal and SNHU's goal is to really enable our partners to do extraordinary work and enable our learners to learn anytime, anywhere. And I think we're we're really on the cusp of helping to create the infrastructure that enables everybody to participate, which is just really exciting to me. It's an awesome time. It's an exciting time. So 
I wish you nothing but the best. But we always end our Ed Trent interviews with a little bit of a lightning round, just some quick rapid fire questions. What do you say? Are you into it? Depends on the question. <laughs> They're pretty easy. So first one, in the last year, what is a book that you've read that you've enjoyed? I'm really liking, so Tom Vanderark and his colleagues just put out a book on networking, which mm-hmm. I, I'm really enjoying. Nice. Okay. You talk about playlists. What about different kind of playlists? What kind of music do you like to listen to? Who's your go-to artist? I date myself. I'm originally from Michigan. My go-to artists are all R&B folks. But I will tell you that I love Bohemian Rhapsody. I'm listening to Queen. I'm listening to Queen this week. There you go. I love it. Nice. Some classic rock. Okay. What about podcasts? Are you a podcast listener? Oh, I'm a Kara Swisher fan. I I listen to Recode almost every day. Okay. What about snacks or favorite guilty pleasure? I am a Ruffles potato chip gal. Mm, Any dip or just straight up chips? Oh, straight up. Okay. What is your favorite activity outside of work? It used to be tennis. I'm now becoming a pickleball player. Ooh, interesting. And I'll test you on whether or not you know what pickleball is, but it's the I, fastest growing sport in the United States. I do not. I don't. I think I've ever heard of it. Like, is it like tennis? What is it? It's sort of a cross between tennis, wiffle ball, and table tennis. Oh, okay. That sounds really cool. And I'm going to have to Google that when I get off the phone. <laughs> okay. What inspires you? Right now... Different things at different times of my life and in different periods right now, great leadership inspires me. I think like many of us, I'm looking for it. Last question. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received or a piece of advice you'd like to leave listeners with? It's very trite. And it's what I say to my kids all of the time. Uh, And it was the most important thing that I learned from sports, which is You know, it doesn't matter whether you win or lose. It's really about the effort that you put in. And as long as you're trying hard, you're going to be okay. Connie, thank you so much for joining us. And I really enjoyed the conversation. I love learning about what you guys are doing at LRNG. And I think it's really cool. And again, I wish you nothing but the best of luck because it's very cool. Thanks so much. This has been, it's just been wonderful to have a conversation with you. I appreciate your time. 